welcome to Modern Babylon. This is Cultural Contrarian. This broadcast is going to be a little bit different, and I'm thinking it's going to be kind of a routine practice as I share. Uh, I, I very much enjoy reading and on a diversity of topics, and every once in a while I stumble across something that's rather thought-provoking, and I know many people don't like to read, and I thought maybe just a podcast would be a medium for you to consume something that I thought was rather thought-provoking, and it's a good um, paradigm to examine culturally what is happening in our society. So this is called The Mouse Utopia Experiment That Turned Into an Apocalypse. It's a very well-known experiment. It's called Universe 25. Over the last few hundred years, the human population of Earth has seen an increase, taking us from an estimated 1 billion in 1804 to 7 billion in 2017. And you can see this is dated. This is coming from Yayochi Akamoto. Throughout this time, concerns have been raised that our numbers may outgrow our ability to produce food, leading to widespread famine. Some, the Malthusians, even took the view that as resources ran out, ran out the population would control itself through mass, mass deaths until sustainable population was reached. As it happens, advances in farming, changes in farming practices, and farm technology have given us enough food to feed 10 billion people. And it's how the food is distributed which has caused mass famines and starvation. As we use our resources and the climate crisis worsens, this could all change. But for now, we have always been able to produce more food than we need, even if we have lacked the will or the ability to distribute it to those that need it. But while everyone was worried about a lack of resources, one behavioral researcher in the 1970s sought to answer a different question. What happens to society if all of our appetites are catered for and all our needs are met? The answer, according to his study, was an awful lot of cannibalism shortly followed by an apocalypse. John B. Calhoun set about creating a series of experiments that would essentially cater to every need of rodents and then track the effect on the population over time. The most infamous of the experiments was named quite dramatically Universe 25. In this study, he took four breeding pairs of mice and placed them inside of Utopia. The environment was designed to eliminate problems that would lead to mortality in the wild. They could access, access limitless food via 16 food hoppers, accessed via tunnels, which would be fed up to feed up to 25 mice at a time, as, wa as well as water bottles just above. Nesting material was provided. The weather was kept at 68 degrees F, which for those of you who are mice, is the perfect mouse temperature. The mice were chosen for their health, obtained from the National Institutes of Health breeding colony. Extreme precautions were taken to stop any disease from entering the universe. As well as this, no predators were present, present in the utopia, which sort of stands to reason. 
It's not often something is described as utopia, but also there were lines there picking us all off one by one. The experiment began as you'd expect. The mice used the time that would usually be wasted in foraging for food and shelter for having excessive amounts of sexual intercourse. About every 55 days, the population doubled as the mice filled the most desirable space within the pen where access to the food tunnels was of ease. When the population hit 620, that slowed to doubling around every 145 days as the mouse population began to hit problems. The mice split off into groups, and those that could not find a role in these groups found themselves with nowhere to go. In the normal course of events in a natural ecological setting, somewhat more young survive to maturity than are necessary to replace their dying or sentient established associates. Calhoun wrote in 1972, the excess that find no social niches emigrate. Here, the excess could not emigrate, for there was nowhere else to go. The mice that found themselves with no social role to fill, there are only so many head-mouse roles, and the utopia was in no need of a ratatouille-esque chef became isolated. Males who failed withdrew physically and psychologically. They became very inactive and aggravated, excuse me, and aggregated in large pools near the center of the floor of the universe. From this point on, they no longer initiated interaction with their established associates, nor did their behavior elicit attack by territorial males, read the paper. Even so, they became characterized by many wounds and much scar tissue as a result of attacks by other withdrawn males. The withdrawn males would not respond during attacks, lying there immobile. Later on, they would attack others in the same pattern. The female counterparts of these isolated males withdrew as well. Some mice spent their days preening themselves, shunning mating, and never engaging in fighting. Due to this, they had excellent fur coats and were dubbed, somewhat disconcertingly, the beautiful ones. The breakdown of usual mouse behavior wasn't just limited to the outsiders. The alpha male mice became extremely aggressive, attacking others with no motivation or gain for themselves, and regularly raped, raped both males and females. Violent encounters sometimes ended in mouse-on-mouse -mouse cannibalism. Despite, or perhaps because, their every need was being catered for. Mothers would abandon their young or merely just forget about them entirely, leaving them to fend for themselves. The mother mice also became aggressive towards trespassers to their nest, with males that would normally fill this role banished to other parts of the utopia. This aggression spilled over, and the mothers would regularly kill their young. Infant mortality in some territories of the utopia reached 90%. This was all during the first phase of the downfall of the utopia. In the phrase Calhoun termed the, quote, second death, end quote, whatever young mice survived the attacks from their mothers and others would grow up around these unusual mouse behaviors. 
As a result, they never learned usual mice behaviors, and many showed little or no interest in mating, preferring to eat and preen themselves alone. The population peaked at 2,200, short of the actual 3,000 mouse capacity of the universe. And from there came the decline. Many of the mice were interested in breeding and retired to the upper decks of the enclosure, while the others formed into violent gangs below, which would regularly attack and cannibalize other groups as well as their own. The low birth rate and high infant mortality combined with the violence, and soon the entire colony was extinct. During the mouse apocalypse, food remained ample and their every need completely met. Calhoun termed what he saw as the cause of the collapse, quote, behavioral sink, close quote. Quote, for an animal so simple as a mouse, the most complex behaviors involved the interrelated set of courtship, maternal care, ter territorial defense, and hierarchical intergroup and intergroup social organization, end quote. He concluded in his study, quote, when behaviors related to these functions fail to mature, there is no development of social organization and no reproduction. As in the case of my study reported above, all members of the population will age and eventually die. This species will die out, close quote. He believed that the mouse experiment may also apply to humans and warned of a day where, God forbid, all our needs are met. Quote, for an animal so complex as man, there's no logical reason why a comparable sequence of events should not also lead to species extinction. If opportunities for role fulfillment fall far short of the demand by those capable of filling roles and having expectancies to do so, only violence and disruption of social organization can follow, close quote. At the time, the experiment and the conclusion became quite popular, resonating with people's feelings about overcrowding in urban areas leading to, quote, moral decay, close quote. Though, of course, this ignores so many factors such as poverty and prejudice. However, in recent times, people have questioned whether experiment could really be applied so simply to humans and whether it really showed what we believe it did in the first place. The end of the mouse utopia could have arisen, quote, not from density, but from excessive social interaction, close quote. Medical historian Edmund Ramsden, Ramsden said in 2008, quote, not all of Calhoun's rats had gone berserk. Those who managed to control space led relatively normal lives, close quote. As well as this, the experiment design had been criticized for not creating an overpopulation problem, but rather a scenario where the more aggressive mice were able to control the territory and isolate everyone else. Much like the food production in the real world, it's possible the problem wasn't of adequate resources, but how those resources are controlled. That's the end of that article. And I just want to add a little postscript here. <clears throat> My father and I often engage in, I don't know, mental sparring and debate. And we come from different worldviews. 
I don't think it's appropriate for me to share my father's worldview, but I'll say mine. I believe man is wicked at its core. I know myself. I've had the opportunity to probe the depths of Robert Bly often speaks into the abyss of man. And it's a dark place. And all men have this abyss. All humans have this abyss. We all have the capability to be a Stalin, a Hitler, to do atrocities like Pol Pot. We all have it. What's different is some people embrace it, but thank heavens the majority of us rebel against it and repress it. My father and I had this conversation one time, one time if, if AI, artificial intelligence, were to get to the point that we could create a Terminator and you were to program the Terminator with a worldview of nihilism, one that doesn't have a moral objective standard that was divine in nature, one that doesn't agree with the laws of logic and reasoning which were birthed by the Creator. And there is no, everything is subjective. And if you had two of these Terminators with that same worldview, they would fight to the death. There's nothing to stop them from ripping each other's arms and appendages apart. And if you had an AI that had a nihilistic worldview and another one which had a biblical worldview, the biblical worldview would become the victim. I thought this experiment was rather telling. And it lets us know what happens to societies over time when you abandon and destroy and eviscerate and kick out the divine. You're left to your own devices and our devices repeatedly over history are wicked. Now, that's not to say that man can't do good. Absolutely, man can do good. Man can do some beautiful, beautiful things. They can make incredible music. They can make beautiful artistic paintings. They can build wonderful sculptures. They can weave intricate tapestries. The creativity of the human is, is beautiful. I just say that's a, a Mago Dei. It's an image of the as a creator being manifest through flesh. I celebrate when man acts contrary to his nature. That's something to, to be joyous about. But to expect man to act good, in my experience, is not reasonable. That's the hope. That's the hope, that's the wish, that's the dream, that's the desire. And I very much want man to be good. But when I see man do evil and wicked and mean and bully and threaten and intimidate, it's just their nature. I want to correct them and say, rebel against your nature. So I'm going to bring this to a close. I didn't mean to sound dark or dreary or anything, but honestly, it's how I, I live peacefully. I live with the peace that I know myself. I spend a lot of time trying to know myself. 
so I can stand in opposition of that wickedness which is inside of me and try to scrub it out. But to me, it's like a, it's like my wardrobe. Gosh, I got clothes that are 20, 25 years old, and they're comfortable, and they're well-worn. And some I got some ripped jeans. There's, there's got to come a time where I throw that stuff out. But some of that stuff's comfortable. It's familiar. I'm used to it, even though it's raggedy. We hold on to some of those things. But over time, we learn that we need to cast it aside. And we have those periods, those mountaintop experiences where, yeah, man, I got to get rid of that. I got to shed that part of me. Some people have spoke truth and love to me about how I can sound aggressive and judgmental or frustrated or, or I don't know. It's just the tone of my voice. It's just part of my passion coming out of my voice. I don't want to do that. And I'm striving at this moment right now to rebel against it as well. So stay tuned as I share more ramblings. Maybe I'll read a chapter of a book and then I'll share some thoughts about how this stuff is the underpinning of understanding ourselves and giving ourselves permission. Because my message is about being free. But one of the things we have to get in order to be free, we have to know who we are. Who are we really? Not who do we project ourselves to be or who do we want ourselves to be. First, we need to understand who we are really at our core. That's a scary journey. Some shouldn't do it alone. Some have the, the trust of a, a loving spouse that they can tease those things apart in a very loving way. Some maybe a little bit too vulnerable for the spouse and that they would benefit from going to, I don't know, the mental mechanic. Lay down on the proverbial couch and deconstruct. So, have a wonderful day. This is Modern Babylon, Cultural Contrarian. Take care.